now we're streaming and now I need a browser to pin the stream oh boy I got a whole bunch of tabs open that I shouldn't have open oh Evan is here okay Jeff wants to come up Taiwan Jeff Hi, Tom wants to come up. Hey, Hello. Guys, I don't know. And now we pinned it. The rest, I'm not confident. Tyler will decide. Cheryl, it's Roy. Bring Roy up. Uh, Roy? She didn't put up his hands. Okay, Roy is here. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome, Roy. Hey, what's up? How's it going, um, everyone? Hey, Yo, it's good. I feel like this is my first time to join, like, right on time. <laughs> no, you are five minutes after the top of the hour. Yeah, five minutes. <laughs> Sorry. But we're still getting it together to be Yeah, we are still, yeah, it's considered early, not started yet. Oh, Ehon. Oh, okay. are we on time? We're five That's minutes official. late. Let's do it. Okay. That's official. Uh-huh. So, the top story, happy Tuesday, is that Twitter makes its version 2 API announced in August 2020, so just a year and a couple months later. The defaults for developers giving third-party apps more freedom as it aims to become more decentralized. Twitter's new API is finally official, but let's read it directly from the Twitter source. And it says, build what's next with the new Twitter developer platform. Today, we're sharing some major upgrades to our developer platform, some of the biggest changes to date. These include making it easier to get started on our platform with the introduction of what's called essential access and opening up more access for free, updating our developer policy to engage new types of innovation that will lead to greater impact on the public conversation itself, and launching new features and officially making version 2 API the primary Twitter API Get started right away for free. Welcome to the Twitter API. And you've got three different options. The essentials, the elevated, and the managed. And it says they're doubling down on developers. Doubling down. Is this after uh, years of, uh, of screwing developers? Because I actually remember when everyone got screwed by Twitter's own development team. Yes, we we covered this story when we met in our last meeting uh, eight hours ago, and we covered that rather extensively. the The history of the 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 great betrayal of two thousand and nine, where sometime around there, maybe ten, uh, where Twitter had an API and pe people spent a lot of money and a lot of time, even raised money. Loic Lemire raised a ton of money for Seismic. And uh, and whatever the the Twitter company he built, and he thought of himself as very friendly with the Twitter founders, and he sort of was. And then they left him and uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of developers high and dry. When they did, it was a bit of a rug pull. I mean, it they would characterize it as similar to you know when you get your crypto stolen out of your wallet, like um, that your company just got the 
plug pulled on it. And there's, there's people still very angry about this. And um, evidenced by some of the tweets that uh, people are sharing on Twitter. Oh, and my friend Luik, who I just referenced, um, this will be interesting. So Luik, who's on Twitter, at Loic, L-O-I-C, he's from France, very smart dude, um, was one of the, France's uh, earliest, uh, biggest uh, entrepreneurs, came to the U.S., San Francisco, 2007, was building companies. He built one of these Twitter companies that got rug pulled, and so I'm interested to see what his tweet says about this. He says, Twitter finally opening up the API and maybe decentralized for those here for 10 year, for those here for 10 years you will understand the joke i should start restart seismic because that's the company that i was just talking about that he did 10 years or 2009ish twitter basically one day told me i couldn't do what i was doing anymore and changed all the rules well he i in his, to his credit he doesn't sound that bitter about it but you could understand how if you had built a company with 100 employees and then one day Twitter says, yeah, you can go ahead and shut your doors down and fire everybody um, and tell your investors you're sorry for taking, you know, $10 million of their money. Um, you can imagine how upset a lot of people, developers are that built their startups on top of Twitter's APIs. And you can understand the hesitancy, as Evan was, uh, you know, very accurately articulating uh, to, uh, you know, repeat that scenario totally. I, I would say one I lesson is sorry go ahead dr Francie. i'm i'm a friend of loeek's and i you know i can always remember and i was on seismic and it was wonderful and it was way way ahead of its time mm -hmm. but you know now i'm watching people on clubhouse trying to build things on top of clubhouse and i'm saying you know why are you even doing that you know, if you know about Twitter, yeah, then I'm sure you do. You know, you know why? Why even bother? Because it's so unstable, so a platform of someone else's building on someone else's platform. Yeah, I, I think you don't trust any big tech company. You know, hitching your wagon to their platform or their tools. Try to be as agnostic and open as possible, but it's such a risky bet. If you don't sign an agreement, then you're running the risk of this. That's just it. If you don't sign an API agreement and a versioning agreement, then this this is going to happen to you. So, in the next big article is that the UK, this is from CNBC, the United Kingdom refers NVIDIA's planned ARM acquisition to the CMA for a full investigation carried out over 24 weeks, citing antitrust and national security concerns. Digital and Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries from the UK ordered a phase two probe into NVIDIA's $40 billion bid for ARM on Tuesday. Makes sense, actually. They, uh, although I imagine that this will, I, I'm curious, those, I'm curious if this will go through, uh, and I guess the, Carl and the U UK geeks might be the best source for getting a pulse check on how likely this is to go through or not. Um, I, I haven't looked into any of this myself. I don't know how much pressure we can actually leverage in this instance, so I'm not sure. 
So it says the UK government announced Tuesday that it wants a full blown investigation into Nvidia's takeover of Cambridge chipmaker arm, which is widely seen as the jewel in the crown of the British tech sector. Digital and cultural secretary Nadine Dorries ordered a phase two probe into Nvidia's $40 billion bid for arm. The probe should be carried out by the competition and markets authority, the CMA over the next 24 weeks, will investigate antitrust concerns and national security issues associated with the deal. The CMA said it had serious concerns about the deal after it completed the initial phase one probe. The takeover is being scrutinized by regulators around the world, and the chip company said in August that the deal is now unlikely to be completed before the initial deadline of March 2022. An NVIDIA spokesperson told CNBC, we plan on addressing the CMA's initial views on the impact of the transaction on competition competition and we will continue to work with the UK government to resolve its concerns. They added that the phase two process will enable us to demonstrate that the transaction will help to accelerate arm and boost competition and innovation, including in the UK. The company bought by Japan's SoftBank in 2016 for 32 billion licenses its chip designs to more than 500 companies who use them to make their own chips. Critics are concerned that the merger could restrict access to arms neutral chip designs and that it could lead to higher prices less choice and reduced innovation in the semiconductor industry but nvidia argues that the deal will lead to more innovation and that arm will benefit from increased investment quote this combination has tremendous benefit for both companies our customers and the industry says nvidia ceo last month the european commission the executive arm of the eu launched its own in-depth investigation into the deal which is also being scrutinized by regulators in the U.S. and China. Whilst Arm, here's a quote: Whilst Arm and Nvidia do not directly compete, Arm's IP is an important input in products competing with those of Nvidia. For example, its data centers, automotive, and Internet of Things, says Margaret Vestager, the European Commission's executive vice president, said in a statement. Quote, our analysis shows that the acquisition of ARM by NVIDIA could lead to restricted or degraded access to ARM's IP with distortive effects in many markets where semiconductors are used. I'm not sure I understand that one. I mean, NVIDIA is the semiconductor company. They want to sell as many semiconductors as possible, and this is going to help them. So it's not like it's an OEM buying ARM who's going to restrict it to others. So I don't get that argument. I think I I agree with you, Tyler. I think this just feels like due diligence on the UK's part here. Like, it's a relatively major company and there's potentially national security implications to this, maybe. So they just, they want to poke the rules in and maybe put a little bit of pressure on so they can get some assertions um, for themselves, like for us, basically. You know, you can't shut down any of the operations within the next 10, 15 years, for instance, those kind of things. Maybe just put some checks and balances on the deal. I don't know. It is. I mean, it is like one of the crown jewels of the UK tech world, right? I mean, there's aren't too many independent yeah. or tech company giants in the UK. We don't really have a lot. I mean, you, you remember Acorn Computers and all the great British computer companies that came and went, and this is like the last man standing globally. So it's kind of sad in a way for me. Okay, next up. Twitter will no longer automatically refresh timelines on the web with new tweets after users complained about disappearing tweets. 
Twitter is updating its web platform, meaning in the browser, to change the way users see new tweets. The social media giant Twitter will no longer automatically refresh timelines on the web with new tweets, and users can now decide when they want to load new tweets. Twitter acknowledged that in the past, tweets could would often disappear from view mid-read when a user's timeline would automatically refresh. Now users can load new tweets when they want to by clicking the tweet counter bar at the top of their timelines. This is yeah, a, that was quite annoying. If you were looking at a tweet and then you went back, it would refresh the timeline and you'd lose that position and then you'd be like, wait, where'd it go? And that was like one of the most frustrating things about uh, just uh, using the app and trying to be productive with it. So, Is it a slow news day? Because that's a top 10 story. That's, that's weird. Yeah, okay. it is a slow. Yeah, a great point. Next one, Financial Times, Substack which is the platform where journalists are going to work independent and autonomously on their own terms and write newsletters that where they get paid from subscribers directly, which is being rather well funded by none other than Andreessen Horowitz, the large investor in Clubhouse, which is putting its money where its mouth is in this battle against uh, the corporate media. Um, and Substack is taking that money from Andreessen Horowitz and using it to entice journalists to leave the the jihad over there at the New York Times and Washington Post and whatnot. And some of them are taking that money and leaving those jobs and working on Substack. But the headline today is that Substack says it has reached 1 million paying subscribers, which is up from 250,000 paying subscribers last December. So a 400% growth is very respectable. And if they contain, if you can contain 400% growth for one more year, then obviously you grow one, four, you know, 400%. If you do that two years in a row, which would make it three years in a row, you're talking, um, you know, 64 X in size over the course of three years. So it's, you know, you only need to do that a few years in a row and you've got a, a, a considerable considerable thing on your hands and the journalists know it. And that's why they're watching this. And Glenn Greenwald, who's one of these journalists who's now writing with Substack says, in case you've been wondering why there's a never ending tidal wave of identical articles from liberal, liberal corporate media outlets attempting to malign and disparage Substack, over the same script over and over, now you know, is because Substack is eating their lunch. And Does the article talk about Substack paying its top authors, content creators, and how much they make? I was just curious. Let's find out. I, I was wondering if anyone on the stage knows, like, the big... Yeah, the I know they pay him, him, like Andrew Sullivan says mm -hmm. he's getting paid more, you know than he ever got paid before. But once again, it's building on top of someone's platform. And eventually, if Substack doesn't make money, they're going to run out, and these people are going to be without a platform. Unless, yeah, yes, and generally, you're correct, of course. I wonder if Substack, in that event, would give them the email addresses of their subscribers in the event that they... They say they will. 
That that is the thing they say they will. I wonder if you have that in in writing, then you could maybe sleep easier about it. Well, it's in writing in the mainstream media. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more in a contract that you could take to a court and say, I want my, you know, 100,000 subscribers. Yes, dear, I, I understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, but I don't know, because I write for Substack sub and I don't monetize. So. Yeah. It's that, well, to answer your question, Evan, um, it says the number of people paying to subscribe to a Substack newsletter has risen. As I said, Substack, which launched four years ago, has 73 employees. High profile writers have been lured to Substack through cash advances and the prospect of editorial freedom. Some earn serious money. The top 10 writers on Substack together make more than $20 million in revenue a year. Oh, Far cow. Huh? I was just emphasizing Bye, that's amazing Diana? yeah so that's two million each. but everyone else makes nothing yeah it's the same same thing with yep. influencers and all yep. the rest of it yes and it's that dynamic it's really interesting as francine well knows as anyone who's been watching tech for a long time knows that is true of youtube creators it is true of twitch streamers it's true of near. It's true of Amazon sellers. It's true of fairly much everything on the webs comes down to, you know, the the top one percent makes ninety percent. And uh, what do we make of that? Uh, you know, by the way, the same is it's the same in the music industry. It's the same in the modeling industry. It's the same in the fashion industry. Is that something? Is there something wrong with that? It, because when it happens in America, now there's something egregiously wrong with that. I have a question. Are, are people writing like for Substack as opposed to having their, their own blogs and, you know, on maybe WordPress and having their own subscriptions because Substack gives them discovery? Is that the reason they're there? Because it makes it easy. Well, two okay. things. In my Great. case, yes. But I will tell you this, Medium gives me more the discovery. I write for both. And what it, does discovery and I, mean? The discovery, the, the people, pe people, find out, people find out who you are, and, and, you know, otherwise they don't know who you are, and, and a way of, you know, discovering that, you know, yeah. whatever you're, you're putting out. Network so, but like, 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 I'll give you an example. This is why I thought of it, and this is so many years ago now. But when Business Insider was, was first starting, um, I had my own blog because I was doing my, my hedge fund. So I wrote a blog just because, you know, I was doing my own, you know, I wasn't charging for it. And Henry Blodgett, who's the founder of Business Insider, who I knew from Merrill Lynch, um, asked me, hey, you know, hey, because he saw my stuff. He said, you, would you mind if we, we syndicated your columns, your blog? And, and I probably should have charged him and I didn't think of it because he, he ended up selling that company for a couple of hundred million. And I just thought, oh, that's, that's cool because more people will discover me being on Business Insider, so it just gives me free publicity. And that's why, so I, I basically syndicated a, a thing I was already writing on my own site to, to Business Insider. So that's what I meant by discovery, it's, you know. I do, and then I test which one 
you know, gets the best engagement. But I'm only doing it for fun. By the way, Henry Blodgett was thrown out of um, the financial market. I know. I well, I, 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 I know the whole story. I was, I mean, he was, I was, I, I was a client of his. I was on the institutional side. I, I understand what he got thrown out for. But that, that all, that all being said, okay, he did a wonderful job of repurposing himself. Yeah, he did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know whether anyone's following the Barstool Sports story, but oh, yeah. anytime I hear that name, <laughs> I start laughing because I hear it in um, his voice. But anyway. Well, there, for those who don't know, Business Insider just did a whopper of a hit piece on the CEO founder of Barstool Sports, which I'm trying to recall his name. David Portnoy. David Portnoy. That's it. Dave Portnoy. And, and but by the way, he's got I want just to be fair to him, even though, you know, it's, he's not my cup of tea in terms of, uh, you know, his personality. He he um, he has put up a bunch of videos um, refuting all of this. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, I'm not sure if this stuff is going to stick. So, you know, yeah, no, so. I've, I've seen I've seen the videos and he seems to be very convincing in his rebuttals uh, to these stories. Actually. Yeah, he's done a whole State of the Union on his I saw that. page as well. Yeah, so. yeah. and I, I got to say, his rebuttal's pretty strong. He he defutes or diffuses the accusations rather directly, and it's you know he he makes a very good case for uh, that this was a, a clear a bit of a personal jihad against him to take him down. Fake news. Uh, yeah, yeah, you made it. You made it quite funny. I can't lie. It's it's actually real. I, even though the story is unfunny, right? But he is kind of this um, very direct um, character. Where I think that's his real personality, at least. But he's trying to be as honest as possible, and he wants to be as honest and direct as possible at all times. So I guess it works in his favor for his. No, no, no. I, I think he's fine for what he developed for this kind of, you know, uh, you know, you know, youth culture. What he does, it's just now, you know, that you know, uh, a publicly traded gaming company, a big casino company, bought thirty percent of uh, Barstool, uh, and they're using Barstool as kind of their brand for sports betting. And he's not exactly corporate, a corporate type. So I just thought it's, that was kind of what I was saying. It's not. It's it's kind of a little bit oil and water. Um, you know, I'm not sure how well Barstool, um, you know, blends in with, a, you know, a regulated casino company. Um, so that, that was kind of what I was referring to. So um, next article, shall we? Uh, let's see. What do we got? Next one is a, a whole new hot thing that's gotten quite viral today called Constitution Dow. Well, DAO, which stands for a Decentralized Autonomous Organization, if I recall correctly. Yes, and I contributed a small amount of, of money to the buying of the Constitution. You so, and, so I am part of the I am part of the DAO. Right. Our friend uh, Jeremiah Oyang also has contributed to this DAO. That's who gets me into these things. <laughs> yeah, he's he's quite convincing. Uh, Alexis Ohanian, who's one of the co-founders of Reddit, also tweeting about this. And who else? Where's yeah? Basically, it's 
you want, can you describe this particular DAO? It's, it's just as you said. Um, There's a copy of the Constitution being, there are two copies of the Constitution in private hands. And one of them is being auctioned at Sotheby's for $20 million. And this DAO is an organization of people who are trying to buy it with cryptocurrency, you know, in this organization, in, in, in this organization, they're trying to raise $20 million to buy it at auction mm-hmm. and then do things like make NFTs of it and discuss it and have it on, you know, shown at museums and all kinds of things. I think it's a really great project. But ah, because if, if they make NFTs of it, they could monetize it basically. So you might even potentially could sell more. Yeah, I guess. Right. Yeah, exactly. But that's not the issue. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think. I mean, the issue that's being discussed in the Discord for it is is basically taking back our constitution from the quote the government unquote. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to hit twenty million, Francine. No, I just said that. I I don't. Yeah, I don't yep. either. Yeah, but uh, maybe they will. Um, if we keep having slow news days, um, and it keeps getting discussed on tech news today, you never can tell. I mean, tech news around the world. Yeah. Um. Um. Well, there. What I think is interesting is what comes through my mind, and I shared this when we met in the previous meeting was this is a, a form of crowdfunding, right? In this particular case to acquire an asset. So it's crowdfunded asset acquisition. Exactly. Which, right. Exactly. And there's, there's, there's a crowdfunding site to which you contribute called Juicebox, And it has a ton, not a ton, but it has a number of DAOs on it that are trying to do crowdfunding. It's not that different from, Indiegogo. But it is, and I'll explain why. And it's it's different in a beautiful way because I shared a little story of when when Donald Trump announced his presidential campaign the first time, um, I had the idea that I assumed his his motives were financial, exclusively financial. And so I thought, well, maybe... Um, we could create a crowdfunding campaign, you know, and raise a bunch of money and uh, until it got to such a degree that he would accept the money in lieu of running for president. And to me, this was like a performance art piece, almost a political performance, political art. And I thought it'd be fun to do. And I actually worked, I I contacted and talked to the folks at uh, Indiegogo and um, GoFundMe and Stripe, because it turns out I couldn't do it on either of those platforms based on their uh, policies. It was in violation of some of their kind of niche fringe policies. And it was also incompatible with the technical feasibility of Stripe because they have a limitation on the number of days with which you can hold the funds. And I needed to hold the funds for like nine months and that wasn't gonna work uh, technically for them. So it wasn't technically possible to do it, but doing it this way, it would very easily be very technical. It would be incredibly simplistic to do it this way. And that's where it gets very, that's why I say it is different in an interesting way, because 
we could eat if Donald Trump decides to run again, then we absolutely could do something like this. And I imagine if Trump does run again, I imagine we could raise a couple hundred million dollars to persuade him not to run again. So it could be very interesting and it and it, and it could make it very easy to do a, a, tons of amazing crowdfunded con, uh, acquisitions of all kinds of things. In addition to the Constitution, for example, you could have uh, all kinds of uh, crowdfunded, you know, people could participate in auctions uh, in fractional ownership of all kinds of things. Um, so the the next article, I guess, if we jump into the next one, is while Twitter users mock NFTs and Web3, believers retaliate. Oh, let me read that again. It says, while Twitter users mock NFTs and Web3 believers retaliate, Andreessen Horowitz, Facebook, and others are investing in the crypto industry to remake the internet in their image. And, they're called, and it says, who will win the Web3 culture war? Um, well, the geeks will win that one. That's <laughs> as, as geeks always have. Um, geeks up to Well, 100. A16Z, which is nothing but a collection of geeks. Um, but the, I mean, the question, uh, it's just a weird, it's just a, a blog post by somebody who hasn't closely followed the history of tech uh, to know how these things usually play out. Yeah, technologies often get criticized and are, you know, people are skeptical and then uh, the geeks are proven themselves to be insanely relentless when it comes to these things. So, hey, now it's so funny, right clickers versus the monkey JPG owners. <laughs> What's that? No, the headline of this article is very funny. It says right clickers versus the monkey JPG owners. Look at the top. Yeah, the JPEG owners. Yeah, I've always wondered about that. So Oh, right clickers versus the monkey JPEG owners. Okay, meaning the monkey JPEG owners is slang for people who bought NFTs of the you know stoned apes or whatever which are NFT owners versus the right clickers, which means people who just take images and <laughs> versus the people who own those uh, NFTs. Who will win the Web3 culture war? Um, well, Ryan, the, the person who wrote the post, uh, I can assure you the, the NFT owners in that case will win. But the, the next article is that Pew, has, who's a massive research group has done some research about Twitter usage, and they say that uh, 42% of Twitter users primarily use Twitter for entertainment, and only 20% use Twitter primarily for news. One third of Twitter users visit less than once a week, and 66 visit at least once a week. And the next one is from the Wall Street Journal that Ohio Attorney General is suing Meta slash Facebook on behalf of an Ohio pension fund and Facebook investors alleging Facebook executives misled the public about its product's negative impacts on minors. And as the Wall Street Journal says, and and they see, I mean, they're writing this article, so I imagine they feel rather proud that they are 
di rather directly responsible for this lawsuit against Facebook because um, this is directly related to the journalistic work, if you want to call it that, that um, the Wall Street Journal did for, uh, with the whistleblower, Francis Hogan, where one of the initial revelations was a document which the Wall Street Journal claims shows that Facebook is toxic for young, and Facebook knows that Facebook is, or Instagram is toxic to young female users. And that was the claim in the Wall Street Journal. And the question is, is that in fact true? And I would point you to the New York, the, who was that? NPR, National Public Radio, who themselves wanted to know how accurate that is. So they, as they are tend to do, went to some real authorities on the issue of uh, doing research in a clinical sense, a clinical psychologist, researcher, and asked them, is this uh, legitimate, this survey that a Facebook team member um, did a little informal survey asking teenage users how they feel, how they think Instagram makes them feel. And the response from the NPR piece, from the clinical psychologist researcher says, that is not how psychology or research works. You don't ask the person how you think this thing makes you feel. That is useless in a research context. So just based on that alone, I would say this entire lawsuit is garbage. Based on that researcher's uh, very firm assertion that you can't ask the subject of your psychological research how they think something makes them feel. Um, that's not valid research, thus it's not science, thus it's not fact. So, um, Well, it's not – it could be science, but it could be unethical from the perspective of the kind of polling or questions that you want to pose. Leading questions like that destroy the objectivity of such surveys. So self-reporting is famously unreliable so you usually have to play all of these games like the minnesota multi-phasic inventory asks you the same question six different ways so it gives you this kind of spread so you can measure the variance or repeatability of some of these questions so it's it's very important to do it carefully so if it was an internal uh research it wasn't done in the most uh, rigorous of standard or up to the rigorous well, standards that usually you have in academia. There are different research modalities and um, methodologies. And so interpretive science actually does allow for psychometric analysis where in which people um, are, they, they reflect in how they're feeling. So, so if you're going to do a lab rat type of objective research, then no, you want to be as so-called, you know, objective as possible. But interpretive scientists, you know, they acknowledge that people are, that, that life is a social construct. And so I, you know, I would not go so far as to say that the research itself is not valid. Um, it's, it's a different type of research. Um, it's not something that you would find in, um, you know, in, um, in, a, in a positivistic research study per, per se. But I, I would not go so far as to say that the research is invalid. 
you'd get hassled by the ethics uh, office or the, the 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 people who usually review these things before they go live. At, at least at the university where where I work, it, it, they're they're quite uh, sticklers to uh, being as objective Absolutely. as you can. The institutional be. review board, yeah. So in U.S., um, yes, all research has to go before the institutional re research board, and that's essentially to make sure that the research itself is not doing harm, particularly when you're dealing with human subjects, people, and minors, and other vulnerable populations. Absolutely. Um, how how do you think this will play out? Uh, Lakeisha, this particular case of this lawsuit, they're suing for $100 billion because the uh, they're claiming that the stock went down because of these Wall Street Journal articles. And well, well it, really, it really didn't go down as we discussed on the, other, on the earlier call. I, got, you know, I but, understand. But, yeah. but they're saying, yeah, you know, the stock went you got caught doing something that you know the the the, assumpt the 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 assumptive kind of claim here is that Facebook knew that it had done something wrong. It didn't fix it, and somebody blew the whistle, and that got out. And so Facebook's responsible for you know. Um, but anyway, Tyler, we all yeah. we we all know in, in America because of our litigation system, given just the raw number of articles, true or not, or partially true or whatever. Because there's been so much, you know, stuff thrown at them, okay, that, you know, you're going to get a derivative shareholder suit. There's going to be a settlement and some people are going to collect money because that's the unfortunate way America is. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter what they're guilty of. If they're not guilty, there's just enough, you know, um, you know, stuff that's been thrown out of them, you know, at them by major publications that, you know, it's, it's not going to go to trial. Okay. And so, you know, th that's what it is. But there is an onus to the institutions, and when I say institutions, I mean like just journalists in general and the media industry to not be so biased in the data that they use, and you know, just I, I know, but but that that's yeah. water under for bridge. And now you're asking about why the attorney general of Ohio did what he did because he, he he wanted to get first mover advantage as the as the lead plaintiff, but as the lead plaintiff, he could also. Uh, if he if he certified as the lead, you know, the, the, of Ohio gets certified as that, he can ask for punitives, which is probably how they got to a hundred billion. Okay, and then he figures I'll collect some money for the Ohio pension system. Why not? It's free money. It's laying on the table. I mean, that's the way. Unfortunately, it works in the United States with the we, with our litigation system. So I mean, it, it's you know. I mean, I don't know if he, if, he, if he actually really feels aggrieved or the Ohio pension system really feels aggrieved. But, you know, why not sue? Why should, why should he wait for Virginia to sue, you know? Well, and as I shared earlier, I'm actually, uh, you know, part of my retirement is with the Ohio, um, you know, with, with the Ohio state, the state of Ohio. But, but I, I do think that there's another piece to this and I, I think that it may be political as well. So as the attorney general of that state, there's a fiduciary responsibility to the people um, in this case, um, you know, whose retirement pensions have, you know, were, were invested in Facebook. And so, so whether they settle or not, I, I agree with you, Ken, it's a matter of, you know, taking the action and in this case, you know, being first move 
first mover, because I, I doubt that Ohio will be the only state that will file suit. I mean, it could be frivolous. Um, and, you know, to answer your question, Tyler, I, as a researcher, would want to actually look at the research, the hypotheses, the questions, et cetera. So I, I really can't tell you, you know, what I think will happen until I actually look at, you know, the structure of the actual study and the analysis. Okay. Should we get into the next one? Amazon agrees to pay $500,000 to California for concealing COVID-19 case numbers from its workers. The first such action under the state's new right to know law. And the UK supermarket Sainsbury becomes the first known customer for Amazon's Just Walk Out tech outside of the US, starting with a London store opening November 29th. Sainsbury's is the first uh, just walk out customer uh, grocery expected open 29th and it's uh, you know it, it's basically based on cameras inside of the shop the groceries pocket market on, uh, in the high Holborn district is already open to Sainsbury's employees a visit to the store on Monday showed a full stocked small grocery store with stations on the way in for shoppers to scan a mobile phone and angled cameras suspended from the ceiling track what shoppers pick up from the shelves and they are charged upon exit the system of software cameras and shelf technology is made by a third-party supplier according to a sainsbury webpage it appears to describe the new store calling the concept smart shop pick and go the technology supplier is Amazon. According to people familiar with the matter, an employee told Bloomberg on Monday that the store will open to customers on October 29. Quote, we regularly trial new and convenient ways for customers to shop with us, and we're currently testing an upgraded version of the smart shop with colleagues at one of our Holborn stores. And there you go. Amazon jump-started interest in cashierless shopping with the Amazon Go branded chain of convenience stores, blah, 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 blah. And uh, they're going to try and convert all of the existing supermarkets into these digital, um, uh, you know, super check self checkout supermarkets. What do they call these? Cashierless cashierless supermarkets. When no doubt Amazon's going to get a whole lot of data about what you're buying. They're going to know who you are and what you're buying at these supermarkets. I'll be curious what the uh, supermarket checkers in the United States think about this because oh, it's a pretty big, pretty large job. And I think they're going to resist this technology. I think they're all going to Although go we have self checkout in most supermarkets now, we just it's just that there's always a person there. And mm -hmm. Okay, uh, it says, somebody on Twitter says, uh, Amazon to open 260 supermarkets across UK as it plots to take on Tesco and Sainsbury directly. Well, that, that would be not easy to build. No, yeah, not all. That's... That's a lot of well, plays. Here, here, it's an article. It's and I'll tweet. I'll pin the article to the top of the room right here. It says revealed Amazon to open 260 supermarkets across UK. When's the date on this? 
this uh, today. The article came out today. Amazon has developed detailed plans to storm the UK supermarket sector as the e-commerce is planning to open hundreds of cashierless grocery stores across the country in the next three years. More than 260 Amazon-owned and run supermarkets are to be launched before the end of 2024, namely 60 in 2022, another 100 in 2023, and 100 more the year after. All Amazon supermarkets will be cashierless, the online retail giant wrote in internal documents according to Business Insider Report. Keep in mind, these don't have to be very large. If they aim at essentially urban centers, they can just be a small little, you know, just enough to basically say we have a physical presence here. We build up communities. We basically get people signed up for the thing. As they basically have that footprint, then they can expand out to larger facilities. But the thing is, they can get very impressive numbers on that with a very light investment if they do this right. Yeah, it says they're in High Holborn. And obviously, like in those types of spaces, um, I don't know whether people have been in London, but it's just like super cramped. So when you find those little local areas, especially with young people, such as like Canary Wolf and stuff, like it could be um, okay, I guess. But... Unless it was like the size of a bodega, I don't, I don't see it really working, like because the way that the UK set up with just paying buying space for, um, shopping centres and just um grocery stores is totally different. So, it's but Amazon is Amazon, so they can probably do it anyways. But they have a really my, interesting thing. My daughter's trip. experience in London. You know, they don't really go to the grocery anymore. They use uh, shopping uh, apps like um, Able and Cole or, you know, there are a couple of others. And they order online if they're, you know, high-end. The one in Seattle has absolutely carpeted the roof with sensors. It's actually insane, like... One of the measurements you can use, it's not a very common one, but, you know, when you work in like, uh, like augmented reality or, or whatever with, uh, uh, and looking at like IOT, one of the sensors, uh, measurements you can use is the sensors per square foot, just to kind of get a quick estimate of essentially, you know, estimating like data feeds going into an area or not. What's funny is going into the, the store in, uh, in Seattle that they do all their prototyping on, you look at the roof and it's like, okay, there's a LiDAR thing there. There's a microphone one there. There's about six cameras there. And it's like, a, like ceiling tiles, but like every single thing, they're almost like little miniature, like data, just the warehouses just sitting there right, right on, on the roof section. So I'd be curious essentially what kind of training sets they do. And they probably, what, what I imagine what they do is they basically see which ones are actually useful for, for things. And they just throw everything in the kitchen sink in there. And then they slim it down for the more scaled out releases. But it's really fascinating to watch in progress. Yeah, multimodal sensing is really, really exciting. You can have very robust systems and even drop some of the sensors after the fact and the systems can still uh, do pretty good inference. So it's, uh, I think that people demonstrated a few years ago with um, Wi-Fi and uh, Connect camera. So usually when you're starting a, some sort of new uh, data set, it's usually best to just throw as much as you can on it and then afterwards figure out what you don't need or what you do need it just helps bring on the constraints and then you can decide afterwards i mean in us um even the groceries that have cashiers um they and some wholesale like sam's club or wegman 
uh, they have a scan app and you you don't I mean I don't go to cashier I just you know uh, have my bags I just uh, grab my groceries and then I check out on app it's very easy and I love it you know, so for this, this Amazon ones, I just I wanted to jump up. What what data are they collecting? Because you're not mentioning GDPR. So, Chris, I think you were talking about it that they I mean, are they doing this without actually getting any um, personal data on the people without taking like actual photos of them? It's actually the exact opposite. When you basically in order to walk into the store, you have to sign a membership agreement that has a somewhat extensive amount of things, much more so than saying, hey, I get a little you know, this is already well established in the grocery store stuff. I don't think you'll understand it very much. But essentially, when you sign up for a membership, you know, discount card saying, I want to save, you know, five cents off of Tostitos or whatever, you're basically also giving permission for basically assigning a unique ID and number to yourself that basically allows them to target their entire supply chain, marketing, everything built around you as basically a reference customer for that. And what's interesting in the traditional grocery store model, you get a you actually are given a slight financial amount of value because you are delivering value to them and you get a slight amount of a discount back for that. So it's that's at least something that what is it with Amazon doing here is I don't necessarily see that as being something that they're offering because they're basically actually going to be offering this at a slightly higher price. And if your data ends up training a more advanced model, I don't see them basically saying, okay, now because we basically figured out that, you know, your your face helped train the model that basically allows us to more recognize shoppers at a 0.1% accuracy increase, you're not going to see that on the personal basis. That's just going into Bezos' next rocket project. <laughs> but well, yeah. Well, no, this is interesting, Chris, to your point. I bet a lot of people don't, I mean, again, you know, people don't read terms of service. People aren't going to realize it when they bought that that membership to sh- uh, shop here because I was wondering where are they getting that permission if they're getting biometric data you know is it just posted at the store or are they I'll doing right it um, yeah it's part of the business the UK. yeah it's, it's in the membership and this is also a really good example of where you somebody you coming, people aren't going to be able to like get their data out of there or getting corrected tomorrow? or anything else whatever but they're also um, yeah. it's a great example where smaller entities yeah, too, who can't afford that can't you know GDPR is protecting the bigger companies have, have who can afford to comply with it right Three, four, yeah, five, and six, in the seven, UK, eight. the Data Protection Act states that uh, you have to explicitly tell people what you're taking from them as well. So, and there's a lot that goes into that, especially okay. with like our social media is just totally different yep. to. Um, well, yeah, you have to tell them what exactly well. what you're getting, no how problem. you'll use it, um, in, and only take what's necessary, okay. and how you'll use it, and everything else. But it's yeah. again, it's um, it's still pretty broad, and people love to throw that word out without really. Um, I mean, I, I deal with it on the corporate end, so I deal with all the contracts around that. I, I do, um, now, but I call you. And I think people think it's a lot more protective than it is. Well, well so it's weird of this specific use case is because Amazon is literally like they're going without cashiers. They're going without security guards. They actually do have one or two there. But the long-term goal is to have like a fully automated, there's not human beings involved process. So the, from the moment that you step on the premises, they know who you are via every biometric trick they can use from your palm prints to uh, facial identification to voice, whatever they're going to use. The, and keep in mind, they've got the Alexa database as well for every single voice print for everyone, um, the credit uh, okay. cards, et cetera. But the key part is once you've identified the person leaving into the store, it's not physically possible for you to steal from them at that point because they know who you are. They just send the credit card billing. They send the bill to essentially the right place. So one of the interesting things with grocery stores is because they have such low margin overheads. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, such low margin that they can make with things, even though there's a mass amount of cash going back and forth between it uh, in a typical uh, grocery store, the margins can basically be entirely removed when you have essentially a certain amount of shrinkage per, per thing, either by uh, either by uh, shoppers or by employees. So just by removing that component alone, 
Amazon already has a competitive advantage. Once you start stacking all the other components, it starts getting kind of interesting. Uh, I read uh, an article that it says it uh, uh, when you after the shop, shopping, they did, uh, like uh, like charge you from your Amazon Prime account. Does that mean you have to have a account Amazon account before yep. you enter this? So that means you have maybe give your consent to that before you entering this room. Now, well, uh, the, 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 the more meta consent aspect that gets more interesting is because many of these companies like Amazon has done in prior markets where they enter in as basically a side player, but then they become a dominant one. And then they basically end up shuffling everyone around until they basically, or, or Google and other companies like, you know, Google, you cannot run an internet website without Google at this point for, because essentially the, you know, the amount of visibility they have on the internet is absolutely insane. The thing that's that's interesting this from a meta perspective is that it's one thing when you can theoretically go without email or go without clicking on websites that might have an analytics tracker on it, which is not possible anymore. But when you start doing this with someone's food supply <laughs> of going, well, the three other grocery stores around my neighborhood shut down and the only ones that left are, you know, this, this you know, super, I have to agree to basically all my biometrics being permanently out there. That's a very different sort of arrangement and that can really affect where a lot of people live. Yeah, and I, I just finished reading the current City AM article on the top as well because I'm really intrigued in how they're going to be using the tech and what, like, I really want to know what inside an Amazon store looks like, but they're using the southeastern areas like um, Thamesmead, um, Dartford, all of that stuff. And, and it seems a bit, like, to me it seems odd, but just understanding that they them having the real estate around these um very pinpoint loca locations means it will be easier to even automate e-commerce sales so and even transport deliveries to people's houses because end of the day what people use amazon most for is um home home buyers so it's like i don't see people necessarily going to the stores but more so getting their deliveries brought to them but if someone wants to go into an Amazon store, then having that location there is important, especially when you're in London or in Kent, the Kent area as well. So I feel like, yeah, just it's going to be expanding the e-commerce uh, market more than most things. Like uh, it said in the article, about 26% of sales came from e-commerce for grocery sales. So, um, yeah, just, just seeing all of the article is... When I think about it more as a delivery service, then it makes a lot more sense to me than seeing it as a grocery where old people, which is what Dartford um, 50% is, is like um, a retirement area. But a lot more young people are coming in and moving out from, you know, just the millennials and people that new families are coming um, to Dartford and to Ken and stuff. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting predicament and Amazon is just particularly ruthless. So... Yeah, it, I've seen the delivery portion of that and the automated deliveries as well being um, quite high with them. One more uh, thing. Uh, sorry, go on. Uh, no, I was just going to say, like last time I was in England, I found it exceedingly difficult to buy fresh fruit and fresh vegetables compared to Canada, for example. The supermarkets here are like overflowing with, uh, you know, fresh produce. Um, if Amazon can bring that to England, which uh, normally is very industrialized, or I, I would say like the city is very, very expensive, like a, a $200 or 200 pound meal in London is equivalent to like a $50 meal in Canada. 
And so if they can help drive down some of those prices, I think that can also address some of the inequity with nutrition, which I believe, uh, is it uh, Jamie Oliver, the chef there in the UK, was working with the Queen to help improve the nutrition of children there. So I think if at least you get that, I think it'll be a net positive. Although all the data privacy stuff, I don't know if you'll still be able to use the, what is it, the GDPR <laughs> to help with yeah, that. So. that. That is, that is what I said that you brought up. And Jamie Oliver, people um, see him as um, uh, like just a tyrant <laughs> with school meals and stuff like that. But um, when we use actually going to the supermarket, it's not, people buying fresh fruit from the supermarket is quite odd. Like most, most people who know what they're doing go to a green grocer and generally go to a butcher. So those are two different places. So a supermarket isn't the one place where you just buy everything from. Like you would never buy a steak from the supermarket. You would go to your local butchers from that and you know him by name and you know the type of farm that he uses and what, how he herds his um, animals and all sorts. So there's there's just a different, how would you say? There's just There's just a different relationship between what the uk has with fresh food and what it has with you know home goods such as like frozen food and you know just packaged goods and stuff well more complaint is that britain's historically with things been a food importer it shaped a lot of their history you know rise and fall of empire sort of kind of stuff so one thing that's interesting with amazon is building up more of an international footprint not just essentially in countries but between countries it does offer some somewhat unique competitive advantages they might be able to take advantage of especially for more processed foods that essentially uh have a higher um higher margin on them than say like you know bananas uh well, one more thing to throw out there with things just as a fun possibility I, I doubt this is the primary reason they're doing this, but it, it, it's definitely something that's it's gonna they're gonna pay attention to. Uh, the number of Amazon Prime customers that they have, they know a lot about the shopping habits. They know about you know where people live, et cetera. And you know now with Alexa, they've got voice prints. Uh, where it gets interesting is if you could basically say, hey, uh, you've got essentially you know part of your Prime membership is you could basically get you know free bananas. You get all you know, or you can stop by for some banana bread or whatever delicious food there is at the local thing. You get a discount. All you have to do is just go visit the local Amazon store. Well, guess what? When you walked into the Amazon store, all your biometrics now have been updated into the database. Everything from your palm prints, uh, the facial parts, all the parts they couldn't get over the computer uh, long range. Uh, they now have essentially a scanning station for essentially anyone in the neighborhood. If you make a single purchase there, that's enough. You got the data set on that. Now all you need to do is just basically have the entire local population shop there at least once or twice. Just enough to sign a legal contract, you know, walk in, get scanned. And now you have one of the largest biometric databases on the population that basically can continuously basically see updates essentially on everything that when a new sensor gets rolled out. Well, so also, the, Chris, yeah. will be even even earlier than that. I mean, low level than that. Like we, I'm in California, so we have Whole Foods that they own, and they give a very minimal discount um, if you use your uh, Amazon cart card or whatever that thing is. So they're tracking your your purchases, and they know who I am because it's you know my Amazon account. Um, they may not have the biometrics or maybe they do for my Alexa, but um, just population wise, they know exactly what to stock, exactly when to tell you, you know, you need to ship it via Amazon or you know, they know what they can correlate all that shopping. Right. And and by, as you're saying, by the area, by the geography and what people here are doing. I would also say that the UK has been ransacked by pandemic. The high streets are basically desolate. Um, and so I think local councils will welcome this as a way to try and get people to come back to, you know, local communities and uh, supermarkets and, you know, shops like that are quite a big way to build people just back on the streets uh, when lots of businesses have been shutting down. So that could be something that maybe why it's welcomed.
Amazon, champion of the local neighborhood community. You think no you way, health, health data. Think about it. If you're buying all that processed food, next thing they're going to put in there is a pharmacy, right? That's yep. Real. That's what, yeah. And you they'll have to buy metrics for essentially for identification. Perhaps you could get like a, 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 they already 20, a $25 voucher. Uh, if you buy a, a six pack of Oreo cookies, you could get a $25 discount for the health clinic. Right, for the diabetes, diabetes medicine, exactly. And yeah. the depression medicine. Or, and they're going to have to... Yeah. Or better yet, if you get uh, two two liter bottles of Coke, you can participate in the new uh, blood sugar test. That they're, that they're no, doing. no, no. Coke is for cleaning. You know that. Are you watching Instagram? <laughs> Coke is for cleaning. Food and pharma. One shot shop. My. Yeah, if there's a one stop shop where you get your phone, calls your. My father um... used to use Coke to clean battery leads. <laughs> yeah, the, if you the, haven't been on Instagram this weekend, it's all the rage. You can clean everything with Coca-Cola. We, we expect oh, yeah, to see we, a spike in Coca-Cola. You definitely can clean your car battery leads with it. <laughs> and you can also clean coin pennies, you know, copper pennies. They're here really so they can drink it, right? <laughs> okay. So next up. Um, we've got, where's the next one? China is warning state firms to exit cryptocurrency mining and is considering punitive measures for those that do not comply. Poor people that didn't get out soon when they could. And the next one is from the information. They say they have a source that Instacart has postponed IPO plans until next year as it forces, as it focuses on expanding its services for retailers beyond delivery, meaning what? So one more thing to throw about that IPO is stuff, just because if, if the, one of the gambles they can make on this is that just going from COVID to post-COVID, that could be a huge spike in basically in revenue profitability. And if they're very careful with how they you know measure their metrics and stuff, they say, look, all right, we're growing exponentially because we we're growing crappily during COVID. Now look, we're growing a lot. And so then they can they can say, imagine if we can make that same increase in growth as if we've got a pandemic recovery for every time every year. And then they they price their valuation on that. Everyone makes that wealthy from the IPO and then it's like, okay, well what do you know? It kind of slowed down like everything else does. But you know, mm. life continues. It says that the, it's they're doing it to give themselves more time to accelerate growth, to fend off competition from DoorDash and Uber, which are expected to increase their share of the grocery market business, as well as Whole Foods, owner Amazon, and convenience startup GoPuff Instacart's full year revenue is expected to increase at least 10% compared to last year, said the person with knowledge of the situations pushed off plans for IPO until next year, uh, focusing, strengthening its services for grocery retailers beyond delivery. Uh, the decision marks a shift from earlier this year when Instacart executives discussed listing the company's shares in the fourth quarter. The, the race is just, that's an incredibly hot race. Like DoorDash just bought uh, Walt here in Scandinavia for uh, $8 billion. Um, and Walt is doing well in Japan as well, but it's a Nordic startup. They're based out of Helsinki and, um, Uber, all, all these guys are going to start. It's, it's a mad, uh, rush to cover the planet and, and just suck up as much of the market share in the same way that Uber battled with other companies and acquired other companies around the planet. 
kind of a consolidation. And you, you always end up in the same scenario where you got two or three big, you know, companies that are going to control the whole pie for delivery. And it's whoever can raise the most money and subsidize the cost and suck up all the customers and, and lock everybody in. Not so different from the streaming platform wars or anything else, but it's, boy, is this, you know, the, the people who can last the longest in this race are going to have crazy insane valuations for years to come because they're locking in the future of cons the way consumers consume. Well, I mean, like people spend like what, like five, 10 bucks a month on music compared to, well, you're going to spend hundreds of dollars a month on food. Precisely. And it's a much larger percentage of the population. So well, I mean, like, everyone needs to buy food. So the, 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 you're looking at literally a hundred X markup essentially compared to what you might see in the music market, but it's the well, same tactics. Also, Chris, the, 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 it's not, I think post COVID is going to be, people still are going to have a lot of this delivered. People just like having things come to them and the newer generations, at least around here don't cook. So they like, I mean, they literally order this stuff every night. So even when restaurants open, there's still going to be plenty of nights that they're ordering at home. It takes six weeks. I don't know why people don't, it's, it's cooking's amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I cook. Okay. It's therapeutic. One. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of a starting a startup where I grow food at your house for you, and then you can pick it out of the out of the yard whenever you feel like it. Wait, Tyler, again, are you not watching Instagram? They have all those like indoor climbing garden things is the newest tech takeoff that's going to be worth a bazillion dollars. Um, yeah, they're actually growing them inside. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you would have to start other service or make it part of your service for it to be a total solution. You would have to pick the food too. You can't. <laughs> no. You can't just grow it. Doctor Pritzky, they have all those robotic arms. This, you've got it. That's, and, we just have to throw all this together. We have to exactly, accept the offering. Exactly. You exactly. Can, but you have to present to the market a complete solution. You know that, Tyler. Well, I need a, a robotic and, and, arm and with a bag full of protein gel at the end of it and it just squeezes it you know you just lay down on the couch while you watch tv and the, the arm will find your mouth with the kind of image recognition <laughs> and then and just squeeze hey, I the saw, tube I saw right that into movie. your mouth yeah i saw that movie it's called wally mm -hmm. yeah, the I new concept for assisted living yeah <laughs> but you, but you can start at earlier in life you don't why wait until you're old with stuff you can, assist, you can start assistant and yeah. oh baby cribs Oh, it's a yeah, retirement facilities, baby cribs, nursery. Yeah. Hey, I want a school version. Okay. Uh, the next one is from Her uh, Hartley Char Charlton at Mac Rumors. He says Apple defends its ads for third party apps, which is a response to a big headline yesterday that people had found. In the wild examples of Apple advertising for apps like Tinder and HBO Plus and catching many off guard saying, why is Apple spending money on Google ads to drive traffic to their own app store to, you know, because they get a 30% cut of those apps. Of course, they're not going to do that for the apps that don't give them a 30% cut, perhaps as a way to keep people on board with uh, allowing their 30% cut, because if you don't, then they obviously aren't going to buy ads to your apps. 
Anywho, so Apple has now responded about this, uh, saying that they are marked as that these ads are marked as being from the App Store and have been live for five years. And it regularly communicates with developers about this. Yeah, I mean, Google their... pays Apple, what, $16 billion or so? You think this is one of the freebies they threw in? I, no, I think Apple's legitimately uh, uh, participating in the auctions. But the problem is they're, they're competing against the apps themselves in these auctions, kind of driving up the price of the ad. So it says, following allegations that Apple secretly buys ads for subscription-based apps like Tinder to collect more commission from the App Store, Apple has now said that this is a mischaracterization of develop and developers are fully aware of the ads it runs on their behalf. Earlier today, um, Mac Rumors reported on an article by Forbes, which claimed that Apple secretly or quietly places ads for subscription-based apps without the consent to bolster its collection of commission on in-app purchases in a form of ad ad arbitrage. Apple has now clarified that it places ads to promote products it distributes for five years now, and these ads are clearly marked as being from the App Store. Apple indicated that this is no different from retailers running ads for the products they sell. I told you they would use exactly that as their defense, did I not? I said Apple is going to use in their defense the fact that retailers sell Apple products and they run ads for those Apple products that they sell. I told you that would be their defense, and it, here they are, using it as their defense. And they said it's a very standard business model. Apple has granted conventional legal rights to advertise in this way in the agreements it has with developers. Yep. And those developers, in many cases, agreed to that without realizing it, because people don't read the shit they agree to. Apple says that the allegation that it is secretly or quietly purchasing ads for developers without their knowledge or consent is an overt mischaracterization. On the contrary, the company says that it regularly engages in conversations with developers about the ads it places, and many developers express their appreciation for this support. Apple says it is committed to providing developers with resources they need to be successful in the App Store. These resources include compilers, testing and debugging tools, technical support, SDKs, libraries, APIs, and more, and they are also include advertising both inside and outside the App Store. Apple's advertising. Man, they have that script down by now. They really want to basically have something to say. Yes, we support developers. Please let us keep this cut. Don't regulate us. So the next one is a new one that just came out from Wired. It says how investigators are using open source tech to identify, track down, and expose foul play and questionable practices in DeFi. And this is from Wired. Open source investigators are struggling to maintain law and order in the wildest recesses of cryptocurrencies wild west Let's see is there anything of interest in here earlier last month a jargon laden post by a pseudonymous twitter handle set off a storm in the cryptocurrency world the account called itself gabagool.eth and referred and featured a fuchsia nebula as its profile picture, it called out what it saw as foul play in decentralized finance, or DeFi, a galaxy of blockchain-based apps providing cryptocurrency lending and exchanging services. Creators of DeFi protocols often foster user loyalty by staging airdrops. 
And on October 8th, Gabagool spotted something suspicious. A cluster of 36 wallets that had received the ribbon tokens had swiftly exchanged them for the popular Ether cryptocurrency, then, trans then transferred the Ether to one cryptocurrency wallet. Gabagool thought that the person or people behind that wallet had likely created the 36 ribbon accounts shortly before the airdrop to maximize their chance of getting tokens. By Gabagool's calculations, the wallet to which they were transferred accrued at least 652 Ether valued at $2.3 million at the time. I thought, okay, this person kind of gamed the airdrop. This man running the Gabagool handle tells me in a phone call. That kind of chicanery is not unusual in cryptocurrency trading, a sphere where fake identities and sock puppets abound. Then Gabagool discovered who owned the wallet by cross-referencing the address with information from Twitter and crypto wallet register ENS domains. Gabagool concluded it belonged to Bridget Harris, a junior employee at Divergence Ventures, a San Francisco-backed venture capital firm that had invested in over 50 cryptocurrency projects, including Ribbon. Gabagool saw that as dishonest. He wondered whether, as a Ribbon backer, Divergence Ventures might have had advanced knowledge of the airdrop and then used that intel to milk millions out of it by converting the Ribbon's tokens to Ether. Quote, they attempted to exploit that information to extract profit, and they did so while publicly stating to be very bullish and excited about Ribbon, he says. Comparing the actions to insider trading, Gabagool distilled his information in a tweet, which kind of blew up as soon as he fired it off. Divergence Ventures denied insider knowledge about the airdrop, but later admitted to crossing a line. It eventually returned the ether to Ribbon. In the wake of the incident, reference to the Ribbon investment disappeared from Divergence's Ventures website. Divergence Ventures did not reply to a request for comment, and Harris did not reply to several requests for an interview via Twitter. Gabagool is among an emerging breed of sleuths bent on spotting, tracking down, and exposing questionable practices in the budding DeFi world. I think you get the idea of the article now. You got, you got internet sleuths out there in DeFi. So the next one is from Fred Wilson, the somewhat legendary New York VC, who um, has, has made a, quite a killing in tech over the years as, as one of the early birds in uh, tech investing. And he's writing a blog post about these $100 million post-money seed rounds that are um, not economically viable, uh, if you do the math on this. And he's do, kind of doing a uh, public service by explaining to all the newbie investors who are new to the whole game of tech that uh, – this don't really work if, if, if we keep having these $100 million seed round valuations. Well, to, to be fair, there are some companies that are deep tech. So you might be playing like a five or 10 year game with respect to the technology alone, not just the investment. So if you are able to analyze or evaluate whether it is a feasible technology, uh, yeah, but I don't think the majority of all of these uh, seed rounds have uh, deep tech or promising technology of that variety. Yeah, he he did all he laid out all the math. He says we've been seeing quite a few seed rounds getting done 
in and around $100 million post money valuations. And that concerns me for a few reasons. And he gives four reasons. Number one, seed stage is when a company has a good team, a good idea, but has not yet proven product market fit and go-to-market model and has not yet demonstrated a sustainable business model. Number two, the investments have high failure rate. In my experience, roughly half of seed stage investments fail completely, wiping out everyone's investment, including the founding team. Number three, this is a lot of dilution from the seed round to exit. In my experience, a seed investor will only be diluted by around two-thirds between seed and exit. Number four, a power law distribution exists in outcomes in early stage portfolio and a seed portfolio is no different. So given that I'm jet lagged enough at 3.30 in the morning, I modeled this out to see how it all works. Here's the Google sheet in case you want to look at my model. And he calculates the math on this of, of the normal traditional metrics of um, how investments play out. And he says, given the assumptions, a $100 million seed fund that makes all of its investments at a hundred million post money valuation will barely return the fund. And that number is gross before fees and carry. Now, all of this depends on a few important assumptions and he goes into all of that in, in exquisite detail and it makes a very strong case for why hundred million dollar valuation seed rounds are not a good idea mathematically. So it's a, it's a really interesting post and it's getting a lot of traction amongst investors. So uh, his friend Bajan says, as always, super insightful post by my friend Fred Wilson and his friend Howard Lindzen. Uh, basically, a, a lot of his closer friends are all supporting his post, but it's, uh, he makes a good point. So the next one is that Tel Aviv-based EasySend, which offers no-code tools for customer interactions, raises $55 million. And researchers say they used a new Rowhammer exploit to successfully flip bits on a 40 PC DDR4 DRAM device, defeating recent hardware mitigations, meaning your memory inside of your devices is hackable. And yesterday we had headlines from Intel and, uh, and who was the other one? AMD, both claiming um, dozens of vulnerabilities in their chips. So again, just the daily update that your devices are in, not secure. And the next one is that the information says they have sources that ByteDance, the owner of TikTok's gross revenue, is on track to rise 60% year over year to $63 billion this year, slightly lower than last year's growth. And People Data Labs, which offers data as a service through APIs, with 3 billion profiles of people globally, raises $45 million, led by David Sachs and the team over at Craft Ventures. They're setting out to create a single source of, single source of truth for B2B data products based on 3 billion people profiles globally. Data as a service. People Data Labs. Data as a service through APIs with 3 billion profiles of people globally. What is that all about? Founded in San Francisco in 2015, People Data Labs has built a duo of APIs for developers, engineers, and data scientists to access people-related data. This includes an enrichment API for those seeking to augment their existing records with additional data, and a search API for those wishing to query 
the full data set without hosting any of the data themselves. Users can specify the full search criteria and parameters. In its six-year history, People Data Labs has amassed a fairly impressive roster of clients, including IBM, Kleiner Perkins, and Home Depot. In terms of use cases, sales and marketing teams can leverage the data to improve their existing qualified leads, or recruitment headhunters might use it to enrich the data they hold on potential candidates, but it can be used for anything from fraud detection to market research. Quote, we take the complexity out of dealing with large data sets. We gather our data from disparate sources, ensure it is compliant and accurate, clean it up and furnish it to engineers and product developers in a form that is flexible, reliable, and easy to use. And they get the majority of their data from so-called data union, which is essentially a proprietary data sharing cooperative that bundles desperate data pools to enable any paying third party to unlock insights. Okay, that can be super interesting. So the next one is that TikTok users show that Disney's text-to-speech rocket, the raccoon voice, wouldn't say words like gay, lesbian, or queer when people entered those texts in. The decision has now been reversed. Whatever was causing LGBT-related words to be silenced appears to have been reversed. A look at VR meeting startup Spatial, which in January pivoted to hosting NFT auctions in virtual spaces. Peloton sues rival fitness companies Echelon and iFit, claiming that both violated patents related to its on-demand classes. And a Latin American e-commerce platform called Mercado Libre, or Free Market, the region's most valuable company by market cap, plans to raise a billion dollars. That's a, that's a very big uh, Latin American e-commerce platform indeed. And according to the Wall Street Journal, doctors and researchers say that social media is contributing to the rise of negative body image issues and eating disorder cases among boys. Until you actually open the article and read the article and the quotes from the actual doctors, which says something a little bit different, saying that, uh, to be specific, uh, this is one of many factors, and even as one of many factors, it's uh, a an aspect, but not causal. And so it's what we yeah. Call these it headlines are kind of the the headlines are kind of uh, silly, I think sometimes. And uh, I wonder if the recent Alex Jones, um, I guess, court case is going to change the way that some people at least post headlines because uh, he got in a lot of trouble for that Sandy Hook mm -hmm. hoax statement. So uh, yeah. As, Let's as, see if that should, as, as, as all journalists should. CNN lost a case, that were they not lost a case, but they settled a case um, with a high school, a high schooler recently. And some legal pundits are claiming that if, if Kyle Rittenhouse gets off, uh, is given, uh, which that decision should be coming in soon. And if the jury acquits him, that he might have a standing for suing some uh, media outlets that um, were less than accurate of their assessment of uh, that whole incident. 
Yeah, you call it, uh, it's not journalism, it's activism. And so when that, when you cross that line, I think that's kind of, uh, you know, uh, a faux pas. So uh, if if he has been slandered or something and his reputation as a young man is, is ruined, like a 17-year-old child makes a mistake, children makes, make mistakes, and the court system is supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, they've even had problems with the jury selection in that particular case. Uh, because there was so much coverage before the case, so it was hard to find jurors who were isolated or insulated from the kind of yeah. uh, media blast that came out. Yeah, and, and more to that point, they had to employ a really interesting strategy of having 18 jurors and, and instead of 12, although only 12 will be selected to give the final decision because they need to give cover and plausible deniability to the 12 so that none of them any one of them if if cornered in a dark alley with a gun can say well i wasn't one of the final 12 i was only one of the 18 but i wasn't selected on the final 12. and the only reason you need to go to such lengths to protect jury members is because you have a wildly misinformed populace which, which that is, can be dangerous with that kind of information though so well, you, yeah, you but, can but, have somebody who's yeah, but by the point, this is they're not being misinformed by Facebook, now are they? They're being misinformed by the mainstream media. And the, the point is, CNN uh, settled on a very large case. Uh, for uh, it, He was suing for like $200 million. And is Facebook losing cases on misinformation? Are they paying settlements based on misinformation? They have better lobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> So next one is... Hey, Tyler, before yes. before you move on, um, and I'm sorry if I had to go take a phone call, sure. and I am going to have to go, but there's breaking news in the Wall Street Journal on, a, on a, a subject that, you know, we've discussed in this room a lot. So I wanted to, you know, give you the headline, and I tweeted sure. it out, um, and then I'm going to just tell you what it is, and then you got to take it from there, because I do have okay. other things, unfortunately, I have to go to. But the Wall Street Journal just broke news that... Um, an employee at Activision Video Game Studio reported being raped by a supervisor. CEO Bobby Kotick didn't tell the board. And it says Activision CEO Bobby Kotick knew for years about um, sexual, I think, uh, sexual misconduct allegations at the video game giant. Top executive did inform the did not inform the board of some reports, including alleged rapes. Co company faces multiple regulatory investigations, and there's a massive article. And I tweeted it to to Tech News, and you got you can you can take it from there because literally I have to go, and I apologize for that, okay. but I wanted to let you know that. Okay. How long ago did you send it? Just like in the last five minutes. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a that's an important story. I was actually speaking with a few people who are game industry insiders, and they said this kind of attitude is quite pervasive. It's very toxic, and very rarely is it addressed. Uh, so this is, I think, going to be a case that kind of sets the mark in a similar way to Harvey Weinstein, uh, where um, we're going to see how systematically the allure, the romance of, oh, I work in video games, you can get seduced into a situation where you don't really understand, hey, I'm getting paid much less than usual, and I'm also tolerating all this abuse just because I believe in this, in this idea, I'm overworked, and it's a very abusive industry overall for the people who are coming into it. After about a decade, it's a little bit easier, but uh, they, sure, they sure do use people like crazy. 
So I just pinned the article to the top of the room and I've tweeted it out to the Tech News Twitter account. It says Activision CEO Bobby Kotick knew for years about sexual misconduct allegations at video game giant. The top executive didn't inform board of some reports, including alleged rapes. Company faces multiple regulatory investigations. And it says Bobby Kotick, the longtime chief executive of video game giant Activision Blizzard, received a troubling email in July 2018. A lawyer for a former employee at Sledgehammer Games, an Activision-owned studio, alleged in the email that her client had been raped in 2016 and 2017 by her male supervisor after she had been pressured to consume too much alcohol in the office and at work events. The female employee reported the incidents to Sledgehammer Human Resources Department and other supervisors, but nothing happened, according to the email, which threatened a lawsuit against the company. Within months of receiving the email, said people familiar with the situation, Activision reached an out-of-court settlement with the woman who had reported one of the incidents to the police. Mr. Kotick didn't inform the company board of directors about the alleged rapes or the settlement, said people with knowledge of the board. Activision has been thrown into turmoil in recent months by multiple regulatory investigations into alleged sexual assaults and mistreatment of female employees dating back years. Mr. Kotick has told directors and other executives he wasn't aware of many of the allegations of misconduct, and he has played down others, according to people familiar with the matter and internal documents. Now, this is, first of all, this is terrible, but... Uh, I'm assuming, and I wonder what others are thinking, that because this was a subsidiary company called Sledgehammer Games, which is one of the many, many game studios that Activision is the owner of, that if Sledgehammer Games' CEO may not have told its parent owner, Activision, that this had happened. And everybody knows, apparently, in the industry. So it's not something that is even kept quiet. Word gets around. The worst thing here is that it was a settlement, I think. The fact that the person who ever perpetrated it did not face uh, justice because of the, oh, it's my word against his, and it's uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. No. But balance of probabilities in a civil case, much easier to win that argument. So a lot of women are finding themselves actually bringing on civil cases because one they're much more effective and men seem to care much more about losing money so uh at least for for males males assaulting females uh but of course that's not the only kind of assault that happens yeah you're right corporate wise it also gets into sec if they're public companies right so um if they're not if if they know of these behaviors and the fact that it risks the company which it does these settlements and they're not um you know, if their executives are aware of these and not disclosing them to the board and investors um, or dealing with it, then that, that gets into uh, material violations under the SEC as well. Okay. Um, that covers the big boring articles for today. Let's do a refresh, Cheryl, and see if there's any new ones that came in while we covered those. Appears not. Nope. Okay, so now we get into the tweets. And the first tweet I have is from Eric Io. 
uh, a scientist tracking the coronavirus predicts it will keep mutating to avoid the immune response, but at a slower rate than before. Yeah, and uh, on, on average, the virus was mutating about two to four letters, so that is nucleotides, those little ACTs. Um, the, the, the rate seems to have slowed down. So one thing about viral stability is uh, a virus seeks to achieve some sort of equilibrium. And, and from the evolutionary sense, it, that information wants to keep propagating. That seems to be kind of what we call evolution is these structures that seem to want to integrate themselves. And just from history, there is a viral protein that exists in the brain that is responsible for synaptic pruning. It seems that there was a virus that integrated and depending on the uh, expression of this uh, of these uh, proteins, uh, you manifest schizophrenia or you don't because it controls the amount of synapses that are active or maintained. So from the perspective of what this virus is doing, it's not necessarily integrating into the genome, but it is finding an equilibrium within the population. So this suggests that it will become endemic, but it, it may become, become less harmful. And uh, Dr. Dinesh is here, or, uh, so uh, he'll probably also have a comment about this as well. Maybe, Dinesh, you have a thought? Sorry, I missed the, missed the context. Uh, what are you well, guys talking got, about? Sorry. I've got two that you might ha uh, have context on. One from Albert Bates in the audience from the New York Times. The headline says, a new source of fuel in an aging Japan, <clears throat> adult incontinence, waste from adult diapers is growing by tens of thousands of ton a year in Japan. One town may have a solution, recycle it into fuel pellets. In rapidly aging Japan, older adults now use more diapers than babies do. <laughs> Diaper waste is projected to grow a further 23% by 2030. One town is recycling used diapers into fuel. Uh, my university town actually recycles dog poop and makes it into fuel. So uh, if you want to make the trip, you can transport your poop there but they have modules in certain areas around the city so it's definitely something that's already been you can I mean, the, there's the proof of concept has been demonstrated that's that's really literally shitloads of fuel <laughs> shitloads of money <laughs> so the next one donish might have a thought on a parisian med meaning from paris a med tech startup from paris called the lifen raises 50 million euros to bring healthcare systems into the digital age Startup has built its success up to now on the digitization of medical reports based on proven technologies. There's a whole, whole lot of money in that space. So the next one is from Jeff G and the audience from Wired. The headline says, used EVs are in hotter demand than ever before. Congress is now considering an incentive that could help low and moderate income buyers go electric. And Hassan sends in this article uh, that the Russian military confirmed that they destroyed the Soviet uh, satellite named the Selena D. And they claim its debris did not and will not pose a threat to orbital stations 
and space activities. However, <laughs> however, there, the International Space Station uh, took it as a very serious cause for alarm. Um, and NASA has says that this was irresponsible and destabilizing action. Uh, Bill Nelson, who's a senator and the 14th NASA administrator, so he knows a thing or two about this, took to Twitter to say that debris generated by the dangerous Russian ASAT test causes the ISS, International Space Station, astronauts and cosmonauts, to undertake emergency procedures for safety. It's unthinkable that Russia would endanger not only international partner astronauts on the ISS, but also their own cosmonauts. Yeah, and, and the crazy thing is, so for example, let's say uh, uh, something hits you at seven kilometers a second, and you're on the other side of the glass on the space station. Uh, a chip can break on the other side of the glass because the momentum transfers over, but that little chipped piece now travels a little bit faster than seven kilometers a second. For example, if it's a tenth of the size, up to as much as, I, I think, uh, uh, several multiples of that energy can be so you end up getting a much, much faster little speck flying on the other side, which can do a lot more damage to, to humans, maybe not necessarily the, the, the structure, but it can be catastrophic because depressurization can also be very, very quick, about 30 seconds from a, a simple micro or microfracture. Carl found a related headline from CNN that says... Uh, U United States says it won't tolerate Russia's reckless and dangerous anti-satellite missile tests. The United States strongly condemned a Russian anti-satellite test on Monday that forced crew members on the ISS to scramble into their spacecraft for safety, calling it a reckless and dangerous act and saying that it won't tolerate behavior that puts international interests at risk. You get the gist. Russia has demonstrated a deliberate disregard for the security, safety, stability, and long-term sustainability of the space domain for all nations. That's unfortunate because usually Russia and America work really closely in space. That was the one thing that I had as hope. Uh, even though we don't seem to get along on Earth in space because it's so challenging, at least the Russians and Americans are working together. Yeah, maybe the Chinese weren't part of it, but maybe they'll come in. But now it seems that space is experiencing a fracturing event similar to what happened with the android oddly enough when it was coming out so uh hopefully i think uh, th when the when the parties settle uh we'll still have something like hey we have russians on one side of the table we have americans on the other side of the table the guy introduces himself as hey i'm rusty and they say we cannot possibly in our good conscience call someone erosion we will instead call you by your name paul and that's usually like a joke about you know how pairing the russians were so i wonder what the reason was behind this sort of deliberate lack of a better word sabotage well and then the other weird thing about it too is not only did they put u.s astronauts in danger they put their own cosmonauts in danger um and so i'm kind of curious what everyone's thoughts on the iss were well it's like when the uh the Berlin Wall fell down. There was a Russian astronaut left in space, and everybody kind of forgot about him. So I'm not. I think they 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 may be considered guinea pigs at this point, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, hopefully everyone is safe and remains safe, and we we get through this. So yeah. So Donish, you just found a, uh, an article here about Biden. 
Yeah, so breaking uh, U.S. to boycott Beijing Olympics just came out uh, in the Washington Post. So uh, as many know, last week, Biden and Xi had a virtual summit. It's now complete. It's, it's finished. Uh, and this dip- diplomatic boycott came after. <laughs> and it's actually uh, currently on Biden's desk. And he's likely to approve it by the end of the month. It's crazy. And the reasoning behind it uh, is is largely around the human rights issues, not around anything else specific like COVID, but more around the human rights issues that have existed for some time. Uh, this is likened to the 1980s, I believe, Jimmy Carter boycott uh, of the Soviet Olympics that at the time had been seen as uh, a victory for the U.S. I wonder how this is going to be seen. It's fascinating. See, I thought I thought he was I thought he was offended that Xi Jinping said they were old pals, and Biden said, "No, no, we're not old pals. Stop telling that to people." You know what? I'm not showing up for your Olympics. Okay, make that clear. We are not friends. I am not showing up for your games. <laughs> yeah, but for all those Olympians who train their entire lives for this, I mean, that's brutal. It also is. I mean, let's be honest. Last time this happened, we were in a Cold War. So I wonder what this means from a broader perspective and it's a huge deal i think people may think well who cares if we don't show up for the olympics it is us saying on a world stage that we will not stand for this and i think that's a fascinating move uh right after we signed an accord with china yeah will any other countries follow suit though because i think that will define whether there is uh collective action against china or whether it's just america doing classical saber rattling I hope that there is some sort of conclusion that is beneficial because nobody wins during a war. Although Cold Wars tend to be very profitable, they're also very tense. You don't have the same threat from nuclear weapons, but cyber can, you know, turn off the power grid and your people can suffer. So it's it's definitely a very tense situation, in my opinion. But I was actually at the Berlin Wall as a four-year-old kid uh, when they took it down. So um, it's it's definitely something that if you didn't live in that era, you don't really appreciate it. And I grew up then hearing all these stories from my mother about how the Russians in Poland really oppressed people and so on. And it was very difficult for folks and you had to line up for shoes. Thank God we're not lining up for shoes with shoe tickets anymore, but we're, we're definitely still in a situation where we're reliant on them and everything we have in our homes basically is made in China. So how's that gonna play out? So, <clears throat> Um, but the boycott is not officially announced, so... No, it's not, but it's, it's yeah, likely. But yeah, it's the likely. title says, yes, soon to. But um, today's meeting, uh, actually it's yesterday, um, I think they try to at least uh, remain the peaceful arrangement or even over Taiwan issues because Biden said it's still and the you know, Taiwan Agreement Act Act and those six uh, um, it, it's old old uh, strategic strategic ambigu- ambiguity so uh, like after all those fights or these tensions between China and U.S. now back to the old policy again. So this talk war mm, seems mm, back to zero again. So for Taiwan's angle, so it's not the uh, 
U.S. is supporting the dependence of Taiwan, but you'd rather say, yeah, we follow the Taiwan. Uh, well, well, BB, just to kind of be very clear, thank you, thank you for bringing that up. I was going to say that, uh, according to the Washington Post, although the administration technically has not finalized this decision, a formal recommendation has been made to the president, and he's expected to approve it before the end of the month. Administration sources confirmed. So, uh, you know, if anybody that's been paying attention knows that there is a special relationship that exists between the administration and the Washington Post. Um, and uh, we've seen this time and time again. I, I would be very surprised if this was not very uh, confirmed at the very top. Uh, what do you to mean by special vote? Like insiders? <laughs> or? Um, if, you, if you look at a lot of the Washington Post has been very, uh, very, uh, gets very early uh, insight into some of these announcements. And I don't think that this happened because of a leak. I'm pretty sure this happened as a plan. And this uh, seems so like a very planned. Yeah. So it's they some said, sort of house of cards thing. <laughs> well, sort of. I don't I don't want to overplay that. I was just saying that I would be very surprised if after the Washington Post has now published this, if America does not do a diplomatic boycott. And by the way, there's different types of boycotts that they can do. Uh, one is a diplomatic boycott. One is an economic boycott. Uh, this is a diplomatic boycott specifically that they have now, uh, you know, told the press. Um, and, I, and again, it's not surprising. I actually think that they're using the human rights abuses as, as cover. I think this is much more about, you know, they are now adversaries and they're, they, they are showing that, um, you know, China's recent moves uh, are not going to be uh, accepted. It is actually scary, I believe, uh, in my opinion, because I think it's, it's the first shot fired publicly. I would just uh, add um, that the meeting between Biden and President Xi yesterday was actually quite, uh, well, in this context, at least for these two countries and these two men, quite positive. Um, Biden said, you know, his, well, he was, he was referred to as his old friend by President Xi. And, and they both went on to discuss a, a diverse array of issues, but also this comes in the bat of um, the climate joint statement that was quite a surprise to the delegates at COP26. Um, and this is being seen by most geopolitical analysts as a sort of an attempt by both sides to reset relations after the uh, antagonistic activities of the PLA um, on um, uh, Taiwan and obviously America's strategical ambiguity for Taiwan as well. So um, this is going to have hopefully some improvements for global geopolitics generally. Um, but yeah, just wanted to add that because I think it's an important context as well. But Piotr, then what do you make of this Washington Post breaking news around uh, around America doing a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics? Uh, I haven't read much into that, if I'm honest. Um, I mean, we've seen boycotts before the 1980s, you know, with Moscow and, and America. Um, but at that point, relations between Gorbachev, uh, who was beginning to be you know, pulled into the main position, uh, along with the American administration, Reagan was beginning to show signs of improvement. So uh, we, we, we've seen this before. Um, I, I would pay more attention to the two meetings, the two presidents meeting yesterday. Uh, as a sign of where they want to take the relationship more than the boycott. Uh, that's, of course, important, but in the grander scheme of things, I don't think it will carry as much weight. Well, there's the relationship two... status changed from we knew each other to, no, we were never close to begin with. 
what well, two big things happened yesterday was <clears throat> that uh obviously the international space station situation and then the meeting of the presidents i kind of wonder if this is to get the u.s is hoping that china will not continue further space partnerships with russia um, and i'm wondering if they're using the olympics as a negotiation tool well, the, the, the space launch was Russia's idiotic attempt to destroy its own satellite um, to the point, as I said, in the giant leaps club, you know, yesterday, it's uh, Russia and America have few things that they cooperate on. Um, but space is one of them. Astropolitics is, you know, a growing area of geopolitics. Um, and, uh, you know, China's China's been increasing its budget. I think its space budget is about 11 billion now. NASA's is about 23.5. Russia's, I don't know. It's not. It's not as much as that. All I would say is that you know um, the the relationship of China to Russia is, is is an interesting one. The relationship of America to Russia is obviously longstandingly difficult, and the relationship of America to China is 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 everything's in a state of flux, uh, and we're very much seeing a transition from U.S. hegemony to multipolar multipolar yeah multipolar world can't say that word today so um uh, the, the two coinciding is a coincidence it, it's not one of a reflection of the other um russia has its reservations with china given its activities in the arctic uh, uh china declared itself a near arctic power about three years ago um and that the, the relationship between china and russia is one of strategical convenience and nothing more the thing that ties them the closest together is their detest of American hegemony. So um, as soon as there's any opportunity for the two to deviate, they will. Um, uh, so I think, you know, America can spy opportunities, maybe the Russians in certain areas. But, yeah, uh, the, the events with Russia yesterday and the space station are not related to, you know, we need to make sure that they're kept independent. Uh, it's all great well, power politics at the end of the day. Well, I think, I think they could be related from one perspective because we've stopped being Russia's customer for their rockets spacex has done such a great job that okay well we figured it out way I'll to go back in one minute but now they need a customer for their space programs russia does want to stay international i think so working with the chinese is the next logical conclusion and what better way to show that the two are correlated than to say oops look what happened today the russians just happened to do a satellite disruption test what a weird coincidence right mr president <laughs> Russia yeah, also flipped I, the International Space Station, uh, I think, 190 degrees uh, about a month ago or so. That really irritated me, too. At the end of the day, you know, any amount of collaboration and cooperation between, you know, the two largest economic powers and any nuclear power is, is a positive. Um, you know, the, the, I was very concerned by the events with Taiwan. Um, and I, I'm, I'm still very, very much against the CCP and, and how they treat many of their people, um, particularly the Uyghurs. But, uh, you know, in, in the big scheme of international security and stability, uh, I think, you know, we, we should welcome as many positive, you know, messages and calls for cooperation as possible. Uh, we'll have to see how this works out with the Russian angle as well. That's all. Okay, we got to get through the rest of these headlines here. We're getting close to the top of the hour. So Cheryl found this one from DW in Germany that Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are earning a combined profit of more than $1,000 every second through their COVID-19 vaccines. And I believe she also found this interesting one from Wired 
that I just tweeted out, uh, which says, how to tell which emails quietly track you. Your emails know more about you than you think, like when you open them or when you forward them to others, but you can reclaim your privacy. And it, this article from Wired tells you how to stop tracking emails, specifically the instructions in Gmail. So uh, I will pin that one to the top here for those. I just tweeted it as well to the Tech News Twitter account. And there it is at the top of the room, hopefully. The next one is that Pfizer agrees to let other companies make its COVID-19 pill. Drug maker Pfizer has signed a deal with a UN-backed group to allow other manufacturers to make its experimental COVID-19 pill. Okay, and next one, let me tweet that out as well. I think that's really good news because you need a whole lot of companies making those around the planet. Um, because pills, unlike vaccines, don't need to be refrigerated and can get all around the world very quickly. And that is one of the best things that ever happened in this fight against COVID, actually. So the next one's from David Crace in the audience from The Chronicle. The headline says, Campus Counselors are burned out and short-staffed. More students are asking for help. Their suffering is more acute, and the pandemic has made it harder for centers to recruit counselors, all leading to one glorious cluster fuck that uh, is really taking a toll on campus counselors. Yeah, but the universities also don't pay competitively for those counselors. Like, I've spoken with counselors at universities, having taught there and so on, and myself using those services. Um, it is very difficult work watching young people suffer in a time as difficult as now. And uh, I think uh, like suicide rates have gone up and all of these other components as everybody's been focused on, I guess, the economy. And it's kind of a silent tragedy. So um, if, if you have children that are you know, in school at whatever level, but with the university level, it's it's especially important to uh, speak to them. I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, since everybody has been so disconnected, it's even more important than ever to uh, reach out, make sure somebody's okay. Okay, so you guys said that was not okay. Next one is from Evan. Found this one that drone delivery specialists wing, which is part of Google lifts the lid on its secret testing facility for doing drone deliveries. And it says that uh, Wing, ha a video below shared by Alphabet-owned company Wing, shows how its team is continuing to develop its drone technology while at the same time running trial services, delivering snacks, and over-the-counter pharmaceuticals to residents in places as Logan City near Brisbane. So I just tweeted that out. So if in case you want to watch that video about uh, the drone testing facility, which may be coming to a city near you soon. Thank you for that one, Evan. Evan also sends in a fun one for us to play. Um, our favorite show, Tech News Jeopardy. So let's jump into... Oh, do I have the music? I do. Here we go. Tech News Jeopardy, everybody. And Messi's not here, so you actually have a chance today. And Ellen's going to win this one. Ellen, you don't, you, you cannot co compete in this one. Uh, 
what is the world's largest sovereign wealth fund? The Saudi the wealth fund. The capital? Saudi.、Pfizer. The Saudi fund is not in the top. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We have the top eight. It's not in the top eight. Huh? Friends of Sally May. Is it per per capita or total? Total. Ah,、uh, then the big countries then. Swedish. Norway, Norway, Norway. Singapore is pretty big, but we are too small. I got help from you. Singapore is number one, two, three, four,、Ooh. six. Singapore is number six. Oh, you... okay. Back to Norway. China. Back to Norway. It's China,、no、but it goes China, but it goes by a different name than sovereign fund. Norway, then Norway. China's number、Island's、two.、Country. China investment corporation. Yeah, by the population. Come on. Number India, one is Norway.、They、don't touch their fund. That's the thing. The world's largest sovereign wealth fund is Norway. Well, Norway. Number two is China. Number three is Kuwait. Number four is Abu Dhabi. Number five is Hong Kong. Number six is. What's、uh, this list? Is it is it the CIA World Factbook or is it World Bank or what's the source of this list? Source of this list is. Okay.、Uh, Just because I'm getting a slightly different list here、uh, after doing a quick look on、um, Wikipedia, but、uh, Wikipedia has、uh, sometimes multiple sources as well. So I'm trying to see what the difference is because、uh, my number three was、uh, Singapore, so and then China again, and then Saudi Arabia, then Kuwait. So I'll bet if you, I'll bet if you included the corporate takeovers in China, they'd be way above as number one. <laughs> Yeah, it says. Now I understand why Ellen has to pay for the subway.、Hmm. She doesn't. Yeah, doesn't pay. You mean? She paid, right? She paid for your subway, right? Oh, my sandwich from Subway Sandwich. Yes. Yes. No, yes. They, she doesn't pay for the subway in Sweden, in Norway. I don't think. Maybe they do.、Um, the source says it's <laughs> the Sovereign Wealth Fund AUM, gathered on October eighth, twenty twenty one. Yeah, Tyler. The Norway—they've、yeah. never touched their sovereign wealth fund, and that—that's—they've、uh, been accumulating that for a long, long time. Well, they invest yeah,、so、quite that, heavily that, in that, a lot of things. Yeah, but the thing is here that the the oil fund fund in, in, in Norway—that is, it's a time bomb. As soon as they touch it, they will have a, a rocket inflation. King. Why is that? Why would that happen? Sorry, just. <clears throat> Like is it, can you can you、um, explain that quickly or is it like a like a I have to sit down with a you know, with a notepad for an hour kind of thing? It's it's quite a long one, and I I think we actually could, should bring Cal into that calculus because because he and me actually briefly touched on that about half a year ago, and the Norwegian oil fund is、uh, haphazardous to touch. Because、yeah, the thing is that as soon as you start fiddling with that money that has been funded in that way, it is,、uh, you will have effects on the the whole you know, the whole country that nobody can actually foresee what will happen.、Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Um, some more articles to go here. South Korea lawmaker says Apple and Google not doing enough to comply with South Korea's new App Store laws, where they have to make it possible for developers to collect payments directly from their users. And Apple and Google understandably don't want to give up those billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars. And will be interesting to see what it's going to take to convince them to comply. And Dr. Fran found a really crazy one that a zebra fish in virtual reality experiment predict the future to avoid danger. Scientists in Japan um, have discovered particular neurons in the brain that monitor whether predictions made by fish actually come true. By making use of a new virtual reality outfitted aquarium where brain imaging of zebrafish can be done as they learn and navigate through virtual reality cues, researchers found neurons that allow effective risk avoidance and create a hazard map in the brain that allows for escape to safety. I really that's don't amazing. know how this works. That's, that's amazing. Really well, that's not really prediction as much as we probably are sensing environmental changes that we don't pick up like they probably have a lot of sensitivity to very 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 slight and minor changes to us but to them it's probably like signaled as opposed to it's not like they're um you know they're prognosticating on what what is going to happen where they're probably already sensing it we just can't tell them what the sense is i think the inference happens very very automatically but it happens almost in the same way that lightning happens if you've ever actually watched lightning in slow mode branches out in multiple directions and then you have one uh one of the paths actually then concludes and makes contact so i think from the from previous studies with rats or mice i believe uh, they had uh, electrodes in the mouse's brain, and they would have it go through a maze. When it went through a maze, it would have a certain kind of activity uh, in their brain. And then when the mouse was sleeping, uh, there would be a different kind of activity, similar to what was before, but the scientists asked, like, what is this difference accounting for? And then when building an algorithm that mapped the activity from their motor cortex and other planning regions, to a computer that tried to make it a one-to-one -one and onto map, you would you were then able to infer that it seemed like the little rodent was dreaming about being in the maze. And the next time they went through, maybe they went that way. So uh, very interesting stuff, very exciting to see that they used VR, I think, or, or like the concepts of virtual reality to uh, scan that. So that's, that's really impressive, wow. Yeah, I just wanted to add using VR nowadays, for predator, you know, exposure to predator or threats, it's getting quite common and it's supposed, it's hypothesized to be more accurate than just, you know, pairing a tone and a shock. So that's why, you know, um, the criticism has been, it's not really something naturally, ha um, you know, um, happening in the environment. So uh, people are switching, especially labs that have more money to using uh, virtual reality um, uh, to, you know, simulate like a predator combined with a smell, even it's even more effective. So um, there has been a pressure to basically go away from just uh, stuff that's not like what naturally would happen, um, but you still have to do it in the lab. So people just have been doing this for quite some years. And also 
you know, that animals use prediction. I, I'm not sure what's so surprising about it because we know that we cannot possibly react in real time to um, changes in environment. You know, we would always lag and be eaten um, right away by predators. So um, all animals have to do it. And I just wanted to add that neurons itself are little computers and still way more effective than any artificial neural networks um, that we currently build from the resources that they use and the computational power they have. So I just wanted to add that. So next one oh, thank you, Katerina. from Alexandra, just sent this one in that um, Finland plans to let workers see their colleagues' salaries transparently to close gender pay gap. The Finnish government is planning a new law allowing workers to check what their colleagues are earning if they suspect they are being discriminated against. And can... It doesn't say, <clears throat> sorry, okay. it doesn't say if you're, um, if you, uh, like, if you have to submit proof of, of discrimination or whatever, or if it's basically that's just your reasoning and everybody gets to see your data. But I think it's interesting. There are a couple of countries that I've seen that um, have uh, broadly available salaries, and and they also have the uh, broadly available like the characteristics for each role, so that you can see easily what you need to do in order to qualify for a promotion, and also um, you know what your pay should be. Um, and people in those countries have apparently said that you know that they like it. Um, but I can't imagine it being, you know, wide adopt, like any sort of wide adoption, like in the U.S., because we like being able to, you know, add bonuses to for people who are performers. And we also like being able to reduce salaries for, you know, women, people of color, anyone else we don't like. We love doing that. So um, and we like not having to explain it. So I can't really see it being adopted here. But I thought it was a very interesting thing to see whether or not that's something that, um, you know, would, would you want to know? Do you see it now? And would you want to know? Are you at a company that actually you know, shows you what it is? Or um, I don't know. I just want to know if anybody thought it was a good idea. In Sweden, we have full transparency. I can actually pull anyone's tax reports for, from the last 10 years by just going to the tax office and ask for it. So we don't have secret salaries in Sweden. Mm. Okay, um, I got to jump out. But um, we look forward to the next one tomorrow, which you can click on the title of the room. And actually, there's the AI tech news coming up here. You can click on that. Yes, it's pin on top. And I think Cami will probably study earlier. So after this, we can jump there. All righty. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Right. See you Have at a the wonderful AI tech room. <laughs>